are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. I hope you'll have a Bible. And um, by the way, if you need a Bible, please slip up your hand and let our ushers grab one for you. We're going to be in Mark, chapter 1. You will need to follow along. We have a couple up here. Who needs a Bible? We'll just, we've got some Bibles right outside the door. We'll just hand some out. Right up here, guys. Who else? Mark chapter 1, we're on page 694 or 1001, 694 or 1001. Why do some people excel as musicians or athletes while others remain mediocre? Why do some excel, some remain mediocre? David Brooks dealt with this question in his book entitled The Social Animal, published in 2011. What is the common denominator for one to attain excellence in music or athletics? What enables them to commit to long-term practice and discipline? Research by Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children. This is a quote, picked out and learned a musical instrument. So 157 kids picked out and their first instrument. Some went on to become fine musicians and some faltered. McPherson's search for the traits that separated those who progressed from those who did not. IQ was not a good predictor. Neither were oral sensitivity, hearing, math skills, income, or a sense of rhythm. The best single predictor was a question McPherson asked the students before they selected their instruments. Here it is. How long do you think you will play? That's what he asked before they knew what they were going to do. The students who planned to play for a short time, did, short time did not become proficient. The students who planned to play for a few years had modest success, but there were some children who said, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play my whole life. Those children soared. That was the findings of uh, David Brooks. They saw this as their identity. They were going to be a musician. It was going to be their life commitment. You know, some Christians are like that as well. Their attitudes say, I want to follow Jesus. I intend to follow Jesus my entire life. Those Christians may stumble often, but over the long haul, they too will soar. We find that in the Gospel of Mark. When you think of your own life, do you see yourself as a Christ follower? More importantly, is your identity primarily found in your relationship with Christ? Is the utmost thing in your life is that you are a Christ follower? Today, our passage in the Gospel of Mark um, introduces this concept of discipleship, and we see the first Disciples step up and follow Jesus. Last week we introduced to you Jesus. Maybe you had been introduced before. But Mark introduced him to us and why he was the good news. And today the good news continues. And we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 1. We're going to start with verses 9 through 11. So let's look at the text here. And this is the baptism of Jesus, verse 9. At the same time... Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Amazing thing is that's all he's going to say about the baptism. 
as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn and open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. There it is. A couple things to remember about Mark. Remember, Mark is the shortest of the gospels of the four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest. Mark has a tendency to give a capsule summary where um, Luke will give a lot more details at times, so will Matthew. And at times, in a different story, John will give more details. Mark likes to make things short. Mark is action-oriented, and he focuses on the deeds of Jesus. And so we have the facts of the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. So it all happens fast. Mark does not intentionally record the birth of Jesus. Remember that? Matthew and Luke give us a lot of details about the birth of Jesus. Mark jumps right into the public ministry of Jesus. And Luke 3.23 tells us that Jesus is now about 30 years old. So we have this big time lapse of 30 years of Jesus' life. But Mark is focused on the three years of public ministry of Jesus. Now we have a map that tells us about Jesus coming from Nazareth. Okay, a little reminder. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, down at the bottom. Jerusalem is that uh, major city where the temple is. And Jesus is going to be raised for most of the 30 years of his life in that town called Nazareth. That's going to be home for him. But he's born in Bethlehem. Now, Jesus is going to be baptized by John. So you see where Jericho is just outside of Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is going to come down to the Jordan River about where Jericho is. And that's where he's going to be baptized. Every once in a while, I like to throw a map up. So you can think along with the text What's happening? So it's pretty good travel for Jesus to walk uh, from Nazareth down to be baptized. Um, verse 10, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heaven being torn open by, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now remember the word baptism means to baptize, means to immerse. It means to dip or to dunk. So Jesus is coming up out of the water, kind of idea that he's like in the water, and now he's coming out of the water from in the Jordan River. He probably didn't get sprinkled. And uh, so Jesus is coming up out of the water. Guess what's happening? The Holy Spirit is coming down to him. And he saw the heaven being torn open, very descriptive of Mark. Uh, it's like it's just ripped. God just rips the heaven open. And he saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. He didn't say a dove was descending on him. It was the Holy Spirit descending on him. And it was like a dove. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. So, by the way, who speaks from heaven? Well, the first century Jews had a pretty good idea that it is God who dwells in heaven. And the one who speaks is the Father um, because he talks about a son, a relationship. To Jesus, he says, you, you 
are my son. Um, the one I love, and with you I'm well pleased. So what's the significance of the baptism? What's the significance of the baptism? First, um, Jesus' baptism is an act of obedience on his part, showing that Jesus was in full agreement with God's plan. Jesus was in full agreement. It was an act of submission to the Father. John the Baptist's ministry, if you recall, was part of God's overall plan. Isaiah 40, verse 2. Malachi 4, verse 1. He would prepare the way for the Lord. There would be a messenger, and it is John. And he's been doing that in the wilderness, preparing the way, getting people's hearts ready, turning them to God, waking them up, because Jesus is coming. Um, So it's an act of obedience. Uh, It showed support for John's ministry. He he comes forward. The messenger is here, Isaiah 40. And now Jesus is going to identify with that messenger. It's also an act of identification with the people of Israel and and their predicament. It's an act of identification with God's people. Um, They are God's chosen people. And guess what? They had failed and they had failed miserably. Much of the history of Israel is about their disobedience and how God tried to get their attention. Jesus is identifying with God's people and their failure, and he is going to become the solution. But he is going to identify with their failure. Um, It's not because he didn't get baptized because he sinned, because he didn't sin. He got baptized to identify with God's people. Let me just remind you, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is going to take on that sin. He's not taking it on right this minute. He's going to take it on at the end of his ministry at the cross. But he's identifying with uh, God's plan for this whole thing. He's going public as he's, he's identifying himself as Messiah. They were waiting for God's promises, the Israelites. And Jesus uh, is going to be a fulfillment of these promises. Lastly, it's an act of dedication for his mission. It's an act of dedication. Jesus's mission is wrapped up in the sin problem of people, of God's people and all people. And he is their solution. And he will pay their sin penalty. His baptism means now the mission of God for salvation is moving forward. Because the Messiah is here. Messiah is present. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Uh, he didn't need to turn from any sin. And John understood this. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15. Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? See, as Jesus is approaching, John gets that, you know, they're related. They're cousins. I don't think John knows until this very instant that Jesus is the one that everybody's been waiting for. He's a, he's a, he's a relative, but he didn't know that Jesus was the one. I think this is when John knows. And he says, I need to be baptized by you. I'm the sinner. You're not the sinner. 
Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all unrighteousness. And John consented. Um, It's not that Jesus needed cleansing from sin. That doesn't fulfill all unrighteousness. It means to fulfill all uh, righteousness means God's plan must be fulfilled. Jesus is to be identified publicly as God's son. And we get this clearly uh, with the voice in verse 11. What's the significance of the voice? The voice from heaven, you are my son with whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. This identifies God's son. Think about this. This is one of the most powerful events in all the Bible. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and the Father from heaven speaks. And he says, this is my son. We have the Father present, the Son present, and the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing event. And God is going public with one of the most important times in the history of the world. Jesus is present. God has sent his son. Um, Messiah was known to be the son of God. Uh, Psalm 2 is clear about this. This talks about the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed would be Messiah. Messiah means anointed. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Scripture says, I have installed my king on Zion, holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. That's where the king is supposed to reign. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, the father said to the son, you are my son. Today I've become your father. When God spoke from heaven, that prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus was identified very clearly. Not just the title, but this is God saying, this is my son. This is the son of God. Uh, Also, this, uh, he said, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Uh, This proclaims that Jesus is God's son. And it announces God's constant pleasure in the son. Uh, with, uh, With you, I am well pleased. This isn't just that Jesus was having a good day. And God said, hey, I'm pleased. No, the the concept here is that this speaks of a a constant, ongoing pleasure that the Father has with the Son. He is well pleased. And so I'm going to make one. There's a lot of ways we could make applications here. Here's one. You should be baptized as a follower of Christ. That's pretty simple. You should be baptized as a follower of Christ. Now, I know many of you here have been baptized as a follower of Christ. Some of you haven't. The command for us to be baptized comes in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Not in the passage we're looking at, but there is a command. It's the desire of Jesus' heart, the head of the church, that every Christ follower be baptized as a Christ follower. When Jesus was baptized, he shows his commitment to obedience, his deep desire to do the Father's will. Jesus shows us the, uh, the, uh, the desire to identify with God's people and God's plan. And Jesus' desire for us is that each of us are baptized as Christ's followers. We identify with the people of God and the plan of God. We identify with his church. church. And um, we are baptized, Christian baptized, b- baptism is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the early church, this was so important. We, we tend to slough off on this. In the early church, it was so important you couldn't take communion if you hadn't been baptized as a follower of Christ. 
They said, you're probably not a Christian. Because Christians get baptized to obey Jesus. Everybody knows that. And so uh, I think it's way more important than American Christians think. It is part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go make disciples of all nations, baptize them. And it, so it's a step of obedience. And it was meant to be like this first step of obedience as a follower of Christ. We move now to the temptation of Jesus in verses 12 and 13. Um, we have the baptism of Jesus, 9 through 11, now the temptation. And here are the facts. Um, Mark 1, 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, verse 12. And so, here again, we're going to have a capsule summary of the whole event. Mark is just going to uh, take a small picture here, a snapshot of what happened. Matthew and Luke tell us much more. Matthew uses 11 verses. The Gospel of John does not mention this at all. And so... uh, The Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was uh, with wild animals, and angels attended him. So the Spirit, just think about this. The Spirit had just descended on him. It was clear to the whole world uh, the Holy Spirit was present now with Jesus. He was the anointed one, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is now King Jesus, Messiah. And guess what? The Holy Spirit sends him to the wilderness. It doesn't take long. Action. Go, Jesus. And Jesus goes to the wilderness because the Holy Spirit has sent him. This was a major testing experience. It was for 40 days. Israelites understood this 40-day concept, kind of important. Moses was in the wilderness 40 days. Elijah was in the wilderness 40 days. Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. That's really a slow school. Jesus gets 40 days to be tested and 40 days to be approved by God. Now, Matthew adds quite a bit more. I'm going to give you a quick summary of Matthew's account. Um, Matthew tells us that Jesus also fasted and that Jesus was also hungry. I can understand that in verses 1 and 2. He says the devil tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. Do magic, Jesus. Make food. Jesus responded by quoting scripture, a very powerful technique in spiritual warfare that you can learn from his model. Every word from the mouth of God has as food is priority over physical food. Next, the devil tempted him with power. He says, throw yourself down. Use your power to serve me, the devil says. And Jesus quoted scripture. uh, Again, don't tempt the Lord your God. Then the the devil showed all the kingdoms of the world, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you these kingdoms. Jesus quoted scripture again, no way, Jose, worship only God. That's verses 8 through 10. Now, here's the significance of the temptation. Here's the significance. Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus has authority over Satan. He's tested early. Major testing here. Jesus comes out um, and, and... Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 says the devil left him. He was defeated. He had nothing more to bring to Jesus this time. He's going to come back in the Gospel of Mark over and over trying to distract Jesus. But Jesus uh, comes out the victor. Um, the demons are going to face Jesus in the next chapters. And right off the bat, they know who he is. The word is out. Uh, this is the one who defeated the master, Satan. James 4, 7 says, 
Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, the same is true for us. Because Jesus defeated the devil, it is possible for us. We have to submit to God first. Can't do it in our own strength. However, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us just as he fled from Jesus. But it's not about you, and it's not about your strength or your maturity. It's about Jesus. The application here for us is you've been given authority over the demonic realm. Now, I could spend a lot of time building the case here. It's just Ephesians 2.6 says you have authority over angels, good angels and bad angels. Jesus has all authority, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, and he's given that authority to you. You, as a follower of Christ, have authority because you're in Christ. You have a position. Uh, you have an inheritance, and it's above the angels, uh, both good angels and evil angels. You have authority. Um, the Apostle Paul reminds us of spiritual warfare and that it's real. Ephesians six ten through 13. Here's the command. Finally, be strong, the apostle says. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Christian, what if you're not strong? This is the command. You are told, I am told, we need to be strong. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Next slide. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And then he goes on and talks about the armor. And I'm not going to take the time to go through the armor of God. What I want to remind us of, we are in a spiritual war. It is real. There are dark forces around us. A lot of things can drag us down. But understand that spiritual warfare is very real. It was very real in the life of Jesus the Apostle Paul instructed us clearly, we need to understand it. And then by way of reminder, consider that temptation can have three origins. Temptation can have three origins. And here's what I want to say. It's not all about Satan. Sometimes Christians want to blame Satan for everything. But I want to give a little more accurate perspective here. First, there's the flesh. That's me. My own selfish nature can be a... can be the hotbed for temptation. I have enough stuff wrong with me already. Selfishness, being self-focused, the desire to, to please myself. There's all kinds of dangers there. I just need to be aware of that. Sometimes the problem is me. And then there's what the Bible calls is the world. It's a world system. It works against God. It's a world of humans. Uh, we see things like the good life, the attractive life, Life without a commitment to God. And, and, it, and it wants to draw us to do things that dishonor God. There's a system out there that exists. It's real. Whether you think so or not, it's real. And it would draw us away from God. And it actually is under the authority of the evil one. And then there's the devil. Um, and he heads up the spiritual forces of darkness. And the devil himself tempted Christ. Um, so there, there are three places, areas that bring temptation. Me, the system, bigger than me, and then there's a, a spiritual reality of Satan and demonic forces. And uh, 
It behooves us to know the Scripture, know what Scripture says, so that we can uh, know how to do battle. Okay, we've had the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, verses 14 through 20. Now we come to uh, recruitment. And the message Jesus used to start with is in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. After John was in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. This is a marker in Jesus' ministry. After John was in prison, John the Baptist, the one out there baptizing, the one who baptized Jesus, one whose parents uh, are Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's older than Jesus by at least six months. And he's going to be put into prison. And he's not coming out. And there he's going to die. And Herod Antimus is going to cut, us, cut off his head. That is not fun. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes the safest place is not the center of God's will. Physically, sometimes. John the Baptist. But the marker here, John is now taken out of the way. I would say ordained by God. John is taken out of the way. Jesus now steps up. He is now the public figure. He is Messiah. He is taking center stage. It was John who said, He must increase and I must decrease. John got that. You know, the same is true for you and me. He, Jesus, must increase in our lives. And the old self here must decrease. That's what growing as a follower of Christ is all about. So John was put in prison. He went to Galilee proclaiming the good news. Um, let's look at the map. We have another map here. Okay, this is uh, focused on the northern part of uh, No, this is the map we had before, so this is good. Just think in terms of Jesus um, was uh, down at, uh, by the Jordan River near Jericho, and now he's going to go toward the Sea of Galilee because that's called Galilee, that whole land mass around that little lake um, it's something like six or seven miles wide and 14 miles long. It's a little lake, but it's the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is headed up there. And do you see that uh, Capernaum? That's really an important community for Jesus in these next years. Uh, it's going to become his headquarters. Uh, so... Uh, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, oh, excuse me, I gotta wait just a second. I gotta come back. I'm sorry. Verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus says, the time has come. The right time, uh, God's planned time for this to happen is now, Jesus is saying. This is a time marker. The kingdom of God is near. The Old Testament spoke on several occasions as the Lord reigning from heaven. The idea is a picture of a king, the Lord. It never once speaks of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist talked about it. Now Jesus is talking about it. The kingdom of God is near. Um, the concept was to look forward to the coming of Messiah. Jesus boldly announces the kingdom of God is now present. The kingdom of God is near because the king is near. 
The kingdom of God is about God's rule on earth. But this is going to take everybody by surprise because this is not what they expected. They expected the king, the descendant of David, to come and become in riding in on a white horse. And he was going to be a powerful king. And he was just going to kill all the enemies. And then Jerusalem would be great. And Israel would be great. And God's people would be great because they had this powerful king that just destroys everybody. That's not what Jesus was doing. He said, the kingdom of God is near. He was talking about the influence of God. But his plan was that God's kingdom would influence people to be kind and gentle and gracious and forgiving and pursuing peace. And the kingdom of God would expand and influence people. But that's not what they were looking for. And it's not what they expected. And they didn't know what to do with what Jesus had to say. The kingdom of God is near. And he said, repent and believe the good news. This is how you access the kingdom of God. This is how you connect with the power of the kingdom of God. This is how you become more patient and kind and more forgiving. It's not what people expected. Repent and believe. They go together. It's not one without the other. It's turn to God and believe the message. Believe the good news that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. To turn from what you are currently relying on. Are you relying on your religious practice? Are you relying on yourself? Are you relying on your good looks? Turn from whatever you're relying on and turn to God. And believe. That was the message. Verses 16 through 20, the call to discipleship. The invitation comes first in 16 and 17. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother, Andrew, casting in a net into the lake, uh, that, for they were fishermen. And he says, come, follow me. Jesus said, I will send you out to fish for people. So Simon is Simon Peter. Simon is the one who will be called Peter. He will be the apostle Peter. He will write First and Second Peter. Simon is his Hebrew name. Peter is the Greek name. So let's look back at another map. So there you see Capernaum up the top, a little more focused on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has raised Nazareth. That's his hometown. But his ministry is going to be centered around the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum is going to be the home base. Why? Because that's where the fishing headquarters were. That's where Andrew and Peter are from. That's where James and John are from. Um, and he says, come, follow me. Jesus asked them to do something. He says, stop doing what you're doing. And now I want you to do something new. I want you to follow me. And he, he is making reference to the rabbi-disciple relationship. Rabbis in the first century did not approach their students. They did not say, come, would you like to, hey, you and me, do you want to follow me? They didn't do that. Rabbis were important. And the students had to go to the rabbi and make a request and get permission. And it had to be approved. Jesus uh, is proactive. And he moves forward. And he invited his disciples. He selected his disciple. And he says, come, follow me. Um, When a a rabbi invited a 
disciple, to join him and to learn from him, it meant literally following him. The rabbi walked in front and the disciple walked behind and followed. Jesus invited Andrew and Simon to follow, to get behind. And he says, I will make you fishers of men. He promised to transform them, to change their futures, to give them a new vocation, a new calling. They had been casting their nets for fish. Now Jesus will equip them for a different kind of fishing. It will be to catch men. The stakes will be higher. Catching men will be a life and death matter. It's way different. Now Jesus invites them to be trained. And you know what? He invites you and I to be trained. That's what a disciple does. The disciple takes on discipline, training. Their response, verse 18, At once they left their nets and followed him. Remember, the gospel of Mark is full of action. Jesus wasted no time inviting Simon and Andrew. Simon and Andrew wasted no time in making their decision. They left their careers and fishing business and became Jesus' disciples. They walked behind him. They followed him. Verses 19 through 20, another invitation. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. Again, there's no time wasted. Jesus engages two more uh, men. They are both fishermen, and they happen to be brothers also. It's James and John. Uh, James will become one of the 12 disciples. Andrew will become one of the 12 disciples. Peter will become one of the 12 disciples. John will become one of the 12 disciples. James will be murdered in Acts chapter 12. John will write the gospel of John. He will be one of the 12. He is not John the Baptist. He will write the gospel of John. He will write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He will write the book of Revelation. Jesus said, uh, without delay, he called them. The response, verse 20, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired men. Kind of shows that their business must have been successful because he had hired men and they followed him. James and John did not take long to make their decision. The gospel of Mark is action-oriented. You know what? I think sometimes you and I take too long to make decisions. When God asks us to do something. Um, I don't know that I could respond like Peter and Andrew or like James and John. I don't know how much information they had, but they encountered Jesus and they uh, responded. Application for us, Jesus still invites people to follow him. He is still inviting people to follow him today. He's the one who walks in front. And you and I walk behind. It's not just to say you are a Christian, but it means to follow. It means to do what he says. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew picks up on this. This may surprise you because it's a, it's a favorite passage of many of us because of the comfort. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And that's a great one. I just like to stop right there. Take the rest. Come to Jesus and rest. That's good. He does provide rest. Then he says, take my yoke 
and learn from me. This is about discipleship. He's saying, I want you to take my yoke. It's kind of a picture of taking a yoke that an oxen would have and put it on your neck. He says, my yoke is light. It's not like other first century rabbis who put a heavy burden on their followers, on their disciples. And it was like impossible to carry the weight that was put on them. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's saying, come, learn from me. He is going to be the one walking in the front. We are going to be the ones following. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Well, that's really good news to learn from somebody who's humble and gentle. And you will find rest for your souls. That's a big problem for us. We, we want rest for our souls. Because we can be up at night and we can worry about things. And Jesus says, follow and I will give you rest for your souls. For now and for all eternity. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We just want everything to be easy. But he, didn't say, he didn't leave it at just that. So that's an example of Jesus' invitation to us. John 7, 37 is another one. On the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, I wish I could have been here when he said this, because he said it in a loud voice. And I imagine it just kind of upset everybody who was around him. Uh, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Next slide. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus said, come to me. You're thirsty? Come to me. I'm going to give you a drink of something that's going to be a living water, an eternal water. And he's going to develop that in the Gospel of John. But he's saying to those who believed that the Spirit would be given to them, the Holy Spirit. They would have resources. That's why the yoke is going to be easier because Jesus is going to give you resources to follow. He's going to give you strength to follow. He's going to give you guidance to follow. He's going to give you words to follow. Revelation twenty two seventeen is another one. It's the very last invitation in the Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit and the bride is the church. Come and let those who hear say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life And the assumption there is, come. It's an invitation to join Jesus. It's an an invitation to follow him and to be with him for an eternity. John 8, 31 and 32, pick this up. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. See, being a disciple is more than just sort of like an intellectual assent. Oh, yeah, I believe. Oh, yeah, I like Jesus. Jesus said, if you continue in my teaching... If you're following and I'm in front, I'm doing the leading and you're doing the coming behind. If you hold to my teaching, it's about obedience. You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's when you're going to find results. It's when you're following because you're going to know, you're going to understand. And the truth is going to set you free. And he's talking about freedom uh, from slavery to sin, freedom from addictions. Um, Freedom to live and honor Jesus. John 15 shows this kind of discipleship. John 15, 4 and 5. Jesus said to his disciples, remain in me. I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. 
Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And he's talking about a close relationship with Jesus. Jesus is in the front, and we're following behind, but we're following close behind. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will be successful with the task that I would give, I've given you. Whether it's fishing for men, whatever it is, you will be successful in the task that I give. You will bear fruit. And apart from me, guess what? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Your life is not significant apart from him. That's where significance and value and meaning come is as we follow him. So here's what's happened so far. Jesus went public. He got baptized by John. He fulfilled Isaiah 40, Malachi 4.1. He came up out of the water. The Spirit came down on him. God spoke from heaven, identifying Jesus as the Son. The Spirit sent Jesus into the desert to be tested by Satan. Jesus was approved. After 40 days of testing, without fail, Jesus demonstrated his Messiahship. Then Jesus called four men to discipleship. What about you? Are you a disciple? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? Are you actually following him? Is he walking ahead of you or is he walking like over here at the side and you just calling him call him in when you need him? When you can't do it by your, by yourself. There's an article in Fast Company called Change or Die. And um, here's what it says. Change or die. What if you were given the choice? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said that you had to make a difficult and enduring change in a way you think or act? If you didn't, your time would end soon, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered, when it mattered the most? Change or die. According to this article, the odds are 9 to 1 that you will not change. What do you think of that? Even in the face of certain death, 9 to 1, you will not change. The author based that statistic on a well-known study by Dr. Edward Miller, the dean of the medical school and CEO of the Hospital of John Hopkins University. Dr. Miller studied patients whose heart disease was so severe they had to undergo, undergo bypass surgery traumatic and expensive procedure that can cost more than $100,000 if complications arise. About 600,000 people have bypasses every year in the United States. About 1.3 million heart patients have angioplasties. The, the, uh, the procedures temporarily relieve chest pains, but rarely prevent heart attacks or prolong lives. Around half the time, the bypass grafts clog up in a few years, the angioplasties in a few months. You probably didn't want to know that. Um, And then he says the causes are complex. Um, And he says, but many patients could avoid the return of pain and the need to repeat the surgery, not to mention after the course, alter the course of their disease before it kills them by switching to healthier lifestyles. Yet very few do. Dr. Miller summarized uh, the research with these words. He says, if you look at people, After coronary artery bypass grafting, two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle. And that's been studied over and over and over again. 
And so we're missing some link in there, he says. Even though they know they have a very bad disease and they know they should change their lifestyle, for whatever reason, they can't. Nine to one chance of failure. You know, sometimes Christians are like that. Sometimes Christians just don't want to change and follow Jesus. They only want to follow when it's convenient. They have the resources, but they choose not to change. So I just want to remind us, let's let Jesus walk in front, and you and I will walk behind. Let's pray. Stand together. Father, I'm grateful for uh, your word and just reminder from Scripture of who Jesus is, the authority you've given him, the power you've given him, and how you've offered him to be in relationship with us. Thank you that he died for our sin. Thank you that he's made it possible for us to, to live for you. He's made it possible for us to obey if we choose. And he's given us the opportunity to follow, to, to be in relationship, to be closely in relationship. Father, it's my prayer that we would let Jesus walk ahead and we would seek to walk closely behind for Jesus. Amen.